0: Hi everyone, I'm Louisa and I'm Bella and we're here to welcome you to the second episode of Industry Magazine's podcast bringing you monthly interviews with artists, music from up-and-coming performers alongside poetry, soundscapes and other creative projects from the sound team. Our
1: focus this month is the theme of collage, a strategy for joining together fragments of information in visual, textual or audio form. We've been thinking about creative ways of assembling traces
0: of our lives and practices. And about how different approaches to combining these elements can reveal new potentials and connections while also coming together to create a new whole. Inspired by these ideas, we're bringing you an oro Collage created in collaboration with industry's Literary Team. I'll also be talking to performance artist Rubia Rose Southcott about the role of assemblage, costuming and movement in her work. And we've assembled a selection of
1: some of our favourite literary submissions from industry's upcoming bric-a-brac exhibition.
0: We hope you'll enjoy it.
1: Quiet Hour by Emily Poncier. To fill a quiet hour is a task too well known these days. Community is sour and scarce, no parties thrown. To fill a quiet hour is to fragment the self. To know oneself is power when oneself is all there is to know. An hour can be made through craft or quiet contemplation. Through minutes, we can wade with work or distanced conversation. And all these small tasks can be named, in fact. These time passers are naught but human bric-a-brac.
0: Hi everyone, it's Louisa here again. I'm here with Rubia Rose Southcott. Rubia is an artist specialising in performance art, currently in her final year at the Ruskin School of Art. Rubia previously completed an art foundation at Central Saint Martins, where she worked a lot with sculpture and casting, and her current work focuses on themes of societal attitudes to death. You can find her performances on Instagram at rubia.rose. Rubia, hi. Welcome. Um, Thank you for coming. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get into your work. So to start, what drew you to performance art and costume in the first place?
2: So I worked a lot in sculpture and casting when I was on my art foundation. Um, and during that time really struggled to kind of uh, find a link between a real love for clothes and dressing up and fancy dress and my practice. Um, So I was really kind of looking for a way to bridge the two together, and so for a long time worked in including items of clothing in sculpture, but it just wasn't like it wasn't really what I wanted to achieve and I wasn't uh, communicating the messages that I'd hoped in, in, in a way that I wanted to. And performance was something that, or has been something that's really allowed me to kind of express that passion in a way for other people to see. I'm also very, recently I've been very inspired by um, a director called Peter Greenaway and a lot of his films are very, he used to be a painter Um, And it was through kind of watching a lot of his films that I really built up an understanding of how things could be both sculptural or painterly, whilst also being performance and film based. And that was a real turning point for me. Um, I really loved the manual, physical side of sculpture making, um, and it was something that I definitely didn't want to lose when I moved into performance so this whole concept of construction in a performance and and set building and prop building um is something that i really enjoy doing and it was like a a really really lovely realization when i when i realized that the two things cuz it could exist so nicely alongside each other
0: that's really interesting do you feel then then the, that the process of performance involves Um, different stages to the one in sculpture that suit your work best?
2: Yeah, I think it's the, you have the conceptualization of a performance, which comes a lot from like, I do a lot of image based research. and, And the way I do my research and construct a performance is by kind of just scouring the internet and, and films and everything and compiling like a huge Bank of images, which all um, kind of influence the final product. And so, once I do that conceptualization, um, I can then turn more towards the aesthetic side, which comes with the research. And, and a lot of the aesthetic um, value is to do with things that I've seen and things that I like. There's a there's a real parity between the way you gather physical material for a sculpture um, and the way you gather conceptual material for performance and and kind of compile the ideas and and make it into the the final product.
0: Mm, that's quite related to our theme this episode which is collage or assemblage. What does the idea of assemblage mean to you and does it play a role then in your process and performances?
2: Absolutely. um, A lot like I say like a lot of you do the I do the image collection um, and that's the very early stage of the collage or assemblage and that builds the concept so I guess you have it in that sense and then in terms of the aesthetics or the visual nature of the work a lot of it is very theatrical and prop based and uh, costume based and, and there is a kind of I spend a lot of time going to different places to gather different items that are going to be a part of the the like the setup and you i construct a lot of the performances are almost constructed like a set up like a still life painting so you you really think about like the positioning and and the objects themselves and how they interact with each other and how they work together um and then that does go one step further in terms of sound and where you where i gather sound from and that comes from loads of different sources. I, I don't compose my own music, but I take like sound bites from pre-composed things or sounds from various different places, voice bites. Sometimes I do recordings of my own voice from found texts and stuff like that. So yeah, that's just another element of the assemblage and collage that that all comes together again for that final final piece.
0: That's fascinating, Um, you touched on costume, Uh, you have a lot of very interesting costumes in your performances like your Ronald McDonald one, could you talk a little bit about the role costume plays in your performances and how do you make or find them? Mm
2: -hmm. Um, A lot of it is uh, research based, I do quite a lot of historical costume research um, and looking at costumes in films but one thing that i really had to think about when i moved into that arena of of taking clothes and costumes into my practice was it had it has to be more than fancy dress so although a lot of the costumes are quite comical i i don't want to directly replicate like a accurate historical costume Um, And I want to think about the way in which I can use costume and makeup to further the ideas that I'm trying to communicate. A performance that I did that was kind of speaking about a societal fear around death and hospitals. Um, It was a nurse costume and while it was quite comical, there was kind of a sinister element to it which which spoke to like societal fears and spoke to the, the way in which we have been kind of conditioned to view doctors and to view sickness and to view death. Um, and so the makeup for that was really crucial in, in communicating that, that message. I mean, some of the, some of the costumes kind of come, come out by chance. And I did a, I did, a, um, a photo series over lockdown with my family. It was a called cool lockdown dinner and it was a series of photos where where I asked them to bring their costume ideas and then I kind of actioned it with them all and and made these sets and these dinners that that turned into these um almost theatrical performances with my whole family and so my fifteen year old brother, he wanted to do a Ronald McDonald McDonald's kind of dinner. Um and so that's where that costume came from. And so that one's that one's a slightly lighter performance and slightly more comical. Over Lockdown I learnt to sew. Um so I can do I can I make a lot of the costumes myself now, which is great because it gives you it gives me the kind of freedom to really execute exactly what I want. And like I said, trying to avoid just making a fancy dress when I'm able to make the costumes myself, um, that's a lot easier because I can really kind of action what I want to achieve.
0: That's a great use of your lockdown time, very creative. Do you feel like the experience of the pandemic, quarantine, lockdown
2: has shaped your work in any way? I think it's affected the way in which... I think about how people see my work um, which has changed potentially to make it more creative um, in the sense that I think a lot about using online platforms such as Instagram but also things like Facebook live streaming um, and Zoom events and things like that and think about how my kind of performances which normally happen where it's just me, um, can turn into this live performance. And that's another, another way that I can extend my ideas and um, the messages that I want to convey to a wider audience, which unusually is something that we're kind of struggling with at the moment. I mean, um at the Ruskin, our degree show's been cancelled, which is normally quite like a crucial a crucial part of an art degree. So we've kind of lost that, but equally it has allowed for more experimentation in the way in which we can we can show our art to to the public. Um which is exciting. And I think it's something that I definitely don't want to lose when the pandemic is over because I think it has been quite fruitful in um in some ways
0: you mentioned sharing your work online on different platforms could you talk more about why you choose to publish your work on instagram and whether you feel it's important to merge your public and artistic profiles in this way
2: yeah it's uh, it's really important to me i um lots of artists do have kind of a personal instagram um and then they'll have their art instagram um, so it's something that I have thought about a lot and it's a very kind of conscious and active decision not to separate the two. Partly because of the way that art is distributed today, I, I I I want it to be my sort of main my main output in terms of social media and how and what people see of me. Um, so I see that as one reason to keep them together. But also because a lot of my performances or all of my performances feature me. And so they are in a sense very personal and they peddle ideas and messages that I believe in. Consequently, I, I don't often include other people in the performances because they're about what I think. So it's important that I am the like the main character in them. And therefore, because they are my own views and they are messages that I would like to communicate generally it makes sense for me to have them as a general part of my life and the and the outward image that i give on social media and there's an artist called Cindy Sherman she does a kind of similar she does a lot of fancy dre- or dressing up and um portraiture and she for a really long time didn't have an instagram account and A couple of years ago she made her instagram account public but it wasn't this kind of really curated art instagram account in the way that lots of other artists have um it was it was kind of an average middle-aged woman's family instagram account which she then just kind of added her her artwork to sporadically whilst also maintaining this kind of personal Instagram and I found that really really interesting because it just really spoke to the to the idea that her art is part of her life and in the same way that I believe she kind of felt I don't think it makes sense to separate the two in that way for me anyway
0: yeah I I really like her Instagram it's brilliant isn't it I Mm -hmm. think it really helps to naturalize what being an artist is in a way
2: yeah absolutely i think it's also really important to kind of the way that i do my research and i spoke a bit about it earlier and have this constant flow of imagery coming through and and i'm constantly thinking about like where i'm going to get inspiration from and what the next thing is going to be and and i don't close any any doors to where that might come from um and so because I do that with with images coming in, I kind of think that I should mirror that with the images that I put out. And so the things that I post will be a continuation of a thought, whether that be so obvious to other people, I'm not sure. But I don't think it ever really stops. And, and that flow of ideas and imagery is something that's quite important to me.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good use of of Instagram as a as a tool for your work. You've briefly touched on this before, but if you want to say anything else about what you've learned from your previous experiences working with sculpture and casting, do these processes of making still influence your current work in any way?
2: Yeah, I mean I really love the physical element to to sculpting and casting, and it's kind of a very therapeutic way of working. Um, A lot of the conceptualizing is is quite tiring and it's enjoyable, but then there is this moment, this like quite cathartic process that is gathering and constructing and making, um, which I really love. And so I don't want to lose that. But also, as I said earlier with, being able to sew and make my own costumes Um, if you're able to kind of construct and sculpt and make your own props it adds this kind of element that is not a theatrical element that i think if you if you only if i only source my props and materials externally then i lose a bit of the kind of originality and the bit of a bit of the personal nature of what i'm trying to communicate and as i've said before like that that personal message is something that is important to me
0: so in a sense you customize your whole performance environment right you described one of your performances which involves green screen and an effigy of yourself as an exploration of the tacky and you can construct that aesthetic as well could you talk a little bit more about tackiness as an aesthetic and why
2: it interests you yeah, so a lot of my work for um quite a long time has looked at the way that we as a society view death um, and the judgment that we put on other people in in how they view it and how we kind of need to come to this understanding that there are differences in preference and are differences in understanding and how people think about death. And I came across um a Daily Mail article the headline had something to do with the Poundland graveyard and it was kind of criticizing the way in which these graveyards were becoming really tacky and overrun with kind of plastic shrines and flashing lights and this kind of thing. Um, and it was something that I really disagreed with and really, really wanted to kind of give that thing a place. Um, and so I, I did a sculptural installation called Poundland Graveyard in uh, Christchurch College, which really it had this juxtaposition between this tacky, criticised aesthetic and the kind of well-respected um, Oxford architecture. And having those two alongside each other, I think, gave a respect for a preference in death that not everyone agrees with. But by giving it that platform and giving that place, um, it allowed me to kind of further the message that it's a valid form of appreciation and that all forms of, of kind of commemoration and remembrance are so personal and so individual and should be respected for that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Do you feel like the contrast between the two aesthetics um, creates a shock that helps to further that message?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to have the two alongside each other because when you when you don't make that contrast the the like you say the shock factor is not there and people don't notice it or acknowledge it in a way that kind of I felt it deserved and by making it incongruous with the setting and and highlighting it in that way it made people realize that there is a very valid place for it.
0: How important are elements of sound and movement in your performances?
2: So sound was something that I came to realize the importance of a lot later. Um, I st- When I started doing performance, it was very much about the visual aesthetic and that the construction of that. And I kind of forgot about the importance of sound and, and kind of had it as a bit of an afterthought, so I'd do the performances, and then when it was all finished and and tied up, I'd then move on to the sound and think, what sound can I add to it? And it just wasn't really working, and I couldn't figure out why for quite a long time. And it was through watching the McQueen documentary um, that I really noticed how much the documentary was moving me and i i watched it maybe three or four times and every single time was just really taken aback with how emotive i found it and how much of an impact it was having me and i couldn't figure out why and then as i said earlier i i watched a lot of peter greenaway films and in the same way they were really like um striking me and and i just kept watching them over and over again and then listened to the soundtrack to the Peter Greenaway films and was like, and it, it it was just doing something for me, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I re-watched the Alexander McQueen documentary and recognized the the soundtrack and the 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 composition and realized it's the same. It's Michael Nyman is the same um, composer um, and wrote the score for both and worked a lot with Alexander McQueen. And it was like that kind of realization that there are very specific ways of adding sound to things that really move me. And because I realized it really moved me, it meant that it had to be important in my own work as well. Like I couldn't I couldn't recognize in myself that sound was important and then not action that in my own work. So that was kind of a massive turning point for me. And since then I quite frequently construct or compile the soundtrack before I do the performance. And so I gather the sounds or gather the music and, and decide what it's gonna be. Um, and then you asked about movement. So then you I realized how massively that feeds into the sound. And if I started with the sound, um, I'd be able to perform with that in mind while listening to it. And the movement would so naturally correlate to the sound that I'd selected. And that really worked well in kind of aiding the performance and really like polishing the connection between sound and movement, um, which was something I've been trying to do for a really long time.
0: That's amazing. Those are really interesting connections. Um, In your answer so far, you mentioned quite a few artists, makers and creatives that you admire. In a more general sense, how do you find inspiration and where does it come from?
2: I think film is a massive one. I try to consume quite a lot of film. Um but equally that's very time consuming. Um and so sometimes it really does just come from imagery and surrounding myself with the imagery that I like at the time. And so I I as I said earlier I kind of compile images and collect it but then I I I print them all out and I physically surround myself with them so that I feel like I kind of absorb the aesthetic and the and the feel that I want to be translated in a performance and I struggled for a really long time with thinking about how I was able to take inspiration from other artists or other directors and things like that without feeling like I was copying or stealing, or just replicating something that had already been done. And that was a kind of a turning point for me when I realized that, yes, someone else might have used a particular setup, or might have used a particular theme, but that didn't mean it was off limits. And, and, like I said earlier, the more source material you have, and the more different places that you gather the ideas from the the greater your ability to be able to make something that is original and interesting and has so many different kind of references and sides to it and you find these really weird kind of snippets of information and it really furthers other ideas that you have and and then you can incorporate all the different elements to I think make something that's pretty unusual and interesting
0: yeah absolutely I'd love to hear more about what you're working on at the moment
2: yeah so at the moment I'm thinking quite a lot about collaboration and how I interact with other artists and that kind of comes from as I mentioned allowing myself to take inspiration from other artists was not feeling like I'm copying them um, so I'm working with another artist at the Ruskin Alice Wade on a collaborative film at the moment that's massively beneficial to kind of if you're able to work with people with slightly different skill sets and slightly different ideas and aesthetics what I've realized is it it can come together really nicely to form this like amalgamation of of skills and ideas which you wouldn't be able to achieve alone so that's really exciting um and I'm really enjoying doing that
0: oh I look forward to to seeing what you come up with next and thank you so much for for joining us this has been incredible really insightful
2: no worries thank you for having me
1: Venus in a crinoline, written and read by Ollie Cowley. Venus wears a crinoline and a stammer of lace. Her curls fall prostrate at thin shoulders and make fictive the rounded, half-lit face, pale as sunlight on marble graves. In a soft dark, an effigy folds on the bed. Under lamplight, the carmine lips are fading from the painted red to a navel pink, soft as an unborn fist. The Cupid bow, long-winged. Somewhere, the Parthenon awaits plunder. In the afternoon sun, the sculptor counts as lovers, like grains of rice or scoured coins, forgetting that a belly full of metal soon rings a new hunger.
3: Now for a soundscape focusing on identity and its intersections with handwriting and voice. As a piece that looks to craft the crafter and track the artist from their product, I found it important that this was a collaboration between members of the sound team, Sarah, Louisa and Bella, and myself, Martha, a member of the literary team. The focus on the identity of the crafter also resulted in a piece that to me was most fascinating as a process rather than a completed product. It started as a written and visual project for the upcoming virtual exhibition and I requested prosaic and verse submissions from the other members of the literary team on the prompts of what your bed feels like, what your tongue and teeth feel like, what thinking feels like and what you think you look like, as well as writing on these myself. I then chopped these submissions up to create a collage poem, altering the original meanings to show how the loss of the author's identity can change their work, resulting in multiple fragment poems of varying levels of coherence and meaning inspired by the Dada art movement. Although in terms of chronology the written piece was completed first, the soundscape was at the forefront of my mind from the get-go. I always imagined a little man running along the slopes of my handwriting, but also across the peaks and troughs of my voice's sound waves. Voice and handwriting seem to go hand in hand in the creation and projection of identity, and therefore it seems necessary to make works for both the eyes and the ears. A mishmash of words, sounds and voices, we look to make it completely chaotic. The bigger the better, this soundscape celebrates both individuality and communal excess, a cacophony of thoughts, a whisper-shout. We wanted to maintain some legibility to do justice to the wonderful written works by the literary team, while also allowing for the overlapping and blending of voices that mimics the visual collage. I am so thrilled and amazed at what Sarah, Louisa and Bella have managed to do as my original idea, making something so unbelievably vivid and exciting feeling almost tangible. We recommend you use headphones for the best listening experience.
4: It's not quite warm.
0: My house is
1: not quite warm. I think. We are living, I think, in a not quite... The 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 space between two valleys as the crow flies.
4: looking at me when I write it, imagining me hunched over a desk with low lamp, definitely an imagination.
0: A reflection of self, a mess, a masterpiece, it's spelling mistakes and corrections, scribbles and lies and ideas and the things you wish you never said, and the things you wish you could have said but you walked away. material such
2: flesh that flops do you you need your leg, my tongue of flesh hello 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 in the middle of my bed sheet get bigger this is will come out
0: so 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 often mixed And mismatched Repertoire. Perhaps I grow these lines like the ones on my hands. Traces. Trazos. This makes me think of destiny as something which is written. Perhaps more than anything else on my body, I feel like I grew the my The lines hands, on my names, palms. The lines on my the palms. Little
1: palms the little mouth that sits between my eyebrows. My own mouth closed. Teeth are waiting. The grease of my furrowed brow speaks, vomiting spelling mistakes. The butterfly calls to get away. Hey. Yes. Bed feels large and small, heavy but not much at all. Honey silk, white sheet.
4: Irish linen is better but cold. I look like nothing too for now. And I don't know when I'll look like something. Too for now, and I don't know when I'll look like something.
1: It's like not for a while now. Hands are too plump. Not for a while.
4: Hands are too plum.
1: To play and the my violin, but I pay it no mind. And my handwriting is thick. If I don't
4: press, press ink onto page hard enough, it will look if weak.
1: Teeth
4: enough, are waiting to clean powder
1: paste Irish, mint, powder paste. charcoal.
4: Tongue is Irish, sitting. Thinking is like clean water block. trying to break
1: not through your rust.
4: Thinking is like clean water trying to break through your rust. Free in parts, blocked and out, here and there.
1: Our writers and performers for this episode's soundscape were Martha Wilson, Tamsin Chandler, Louisa Carmen, Anna Roberts, Mia Berger, Susie Castledine, Ananda Kupfer, Charlie Mars, Richard Peralta, Sarah Catterall and Joseph McCartney with Emily Adelimbos on the violin. And now an essay written and read by Kitty Blaine. This is Liminal Things, bric-a-brac as objects of the in-between.
4: Meanwhile, the child was gazing intently wordlessly at the underwater world. Perhaps a child could conjure up what he wanted to see from what was reflected on his retinas. Yuko Tashima, The Watery Realm. Rows of silver spoons, beady eyes gleaming. Feather boas, berets, guitars out of tune and with missing strings. Hollow-bellied shells, which whistle a far-flung sound of beaches and waves. Necklaces and bracelets interentwined, brooches and rings opalescent, trinkets, trays and toys. Everything we consider as bric-a-brac exudes a sense of the forgotten, the fragmentary, the fantastical. There's a strange feeling of mystery and sorrow in gazing upon other people's once own objects, laid out on a charity shop shelf. It seemed, somehow, vaguely grotesque and a kind of voyeurism, this giving a look over the piecemeal remains of former existences. Earrings from once warm earlobes, a locket once hidden behind a pillow, trinket boxes that once held buttons, medicines, condoms, now jumbled together at car boot sales and sold for tenpence pieces. Normally, we consider liminality in terms of places, or rather, non-places. Liminal spaces are those intermediary, purgatorial locations that lie between origin and destination, like airports, or motels, or shopping malls. They are the ordinary places we recognise and understand, caught out of context. Think supermarket aisles in the middle of the night, school corridors in the summer holidays. We're alienated by the indefinable in-between nature of liminal spaces, but fascinated and afraid of them also. And it seems strange to think of objects as liminal, so inherently do they seem rooted into reality. Yet bric-a-brac also resides in this in-between state, also indefinable. Jarves writes of bric-a-brac as roba, which is not only the Italian word for stuff, but also shares the same etymological root as the word for stolen goods. And this is an important basis for our understanding of bric-a-brac as objects of uncertain ownership. For bric-a-brac found in charity shops, this is easy enough to understand. There, bric-a-brac is the dredges of someone's life, home, travel, relationships, with their original possessor long forgotten. But bric-a-brac doesn't only seem to reside outside of possession after the original owner's lifetime, except for those who simply have a penchant for tap. We never seem to consciously own bric-a-brac, but instead we accumulate it over time as little benchmarks of our life. Gifts from the people we love, souvenirs from places we've been, childhood toys or charms we simply can't get rid of. Across our lifetime, bric-a-brac happens into our possession and indicates towards the memories we've collected. Marc Auger describes how the mundane and arbitrary are comforting landmarks in the overwhelming magnitude of our own uncertain and ill-defined existence. Like how the chiming of a clock punctuates the vast swathes of an empty day, bric-a-brac provides us with inane comfort by grounding us with the illusion of security about our identity, purpose and sense of existence. We take solace in our little china dogs, our ornamental piggy banks, our personalised mugs and office paperweights. These outside-of-possession objects keep us firmly rooted inside of existence. And so, just like bric-a-brac reminds us of our experiences, it also marks the passing of time. But whilst we use bric-a-brac to ground us into the definite and distinct, bric-a-brac itself seems to exist wholly outside of it. After all, what constitutes bric-a-brac? Partially objects of art? almost objects of use, they do not quite fully occupy any category. Consider a toothpick dispenser of an elaborate design, or an ornate penis-shaped bottle opener from a long-ago holiday, or an ornamental jug. Neither completely practical, nor utterly decorative, nor totally sentimental, nor entirely pointless. brick a back resides in a place between presence and absence, with no necessary relation to anything, and as both the object's abstraction, the most concentrated form of its inanimacy and uselessness, and its negation, an inherently non-thing, indefinable, vague, bric-a-brac encompasses the objects that confuse us. It serves to classify that which can't be classified. Perhaps we can begin to understand bric-a-brac if we look at it in a different way, or rather, if we start to look at it at all, in any meaningful way. Normally, we look upon objects of bric-a-brac much like the average tourist looks upon objects in a museum, as a spectator, without paying much attention to the spectacle. We view these objects with a completely empty consciousness, more aware of the fact that we are gazing than what we are gazing upon. And we never seem to be able to consider any one item of bric-a-brac in isolation, but only as objects in relation to one another, with no especial regard for any individual thing. Historically, bric-a-brac was displayed in glass-panelled curio cabinets of middle-class homes as a collection of items, and we still struggle to separate them visually today. Bric-a-brac begs viewing en masse. The word itself is plural. Artist Tom Friedman attempts clarity in perception of the object by consciously presenting items of bric-a-brac isolated in an out-of-place setting. When he first began making bricolage, he emptied his studio of any objects, and reintroduced objects slowly, one by one, so he could properly and carefully consider them, and his works aim to make us do the same, to jolt us from our passive consumption of objects. By slightly warping the mundane, he forces us to acknowledge the non-temporal, half-state, indefinable nature of bric-a-brac, using a liminal setting to reify the liminality of the thing. Partaking in a consumerist culture means we are desensitised towards the objects around us as a general rule, but this is most acutely realised in how we consider bric-a-brac, the objects we consider most obviously destined for landfill. It's human nature to project values onto objects, and however illusionary this may be, it gives them a defined status in our world. Yet bric-a-brac defies this as the manifestation of the emptiness of consumerist ideology. And we're fascinated by this, as well as alarmed by it, like we are with liminal spaces. We feel a kind of perverse pleasure in considering bric-a-brac as the embodiment of capitalist excess. Think of our vague sense of disgust and delight at Portia Munston's insulations of masses of objects from the backside of the mall. And we delight in the possible value amongst the valuelessness. The suggestion of treasure hidden amongst the bric-a-brac captivates our imagination stories of the muse of cortona a unique easel painting of classical antiquity found being used by a peasant to stop a hole in his oven and shows like salvage hunters or antiques roadshow foster our desire to discover something of magic mystic or of utmost value amongst the broken utensils old cds and discarded photo frames at the car boot sale and yet it's not something as tangible as wanting to find something of monetary value amongst bric-a-brac that draws us to hunt through it. When bric-a-brac is categorised as valuable, it loses its indefinable liminal status. No longer bric-a-brac as such, these items enter civilised life once more under new outfits. And it's this very state of liminality that we're so attracted to in bric-a-brac. Not only does bric-a-brac escape the constraints of classification by value, it also defies definite categorization in any sense and this is what both fascinates and frightens us the most the sense of mystery amongst bric-a-brac the hidden magic we're looking for is held in the very fact of their indefiniteness their inaccessibility and vague incomprehensibility we're sure these objects must have a kind of occult meaning by their attachment to human life and as we sift through this detritus we act as archaeologists of the everyday determined to find it. And in this sense, bric-a-brac exists most vividly in our imaginations. The magic of bric-a-brac exists only within the myth and image we've imparted upon it. Like the child in Yuko Tishima's The Watery Realm, who dearly covets a glowing underwater castle for his fish tank, only to bring it home and see it's made of hard plastic, rather than magic or fairy tale, we desperately want to believe in the importance of objects.
1: Oh, yeah. that's everything for today thank you for joining
0: us You can check out more of rubia's work on her instagram at rubia.rose and you can follow industry magazine on our instagram and facebook page Keep an eye out for details of our upcoming virtual exhibition with the written version of the oral Collage and other creations from our literary and creative teams.
1: And if you've been inspired by some of the themes we've explored this episode, how about having a go at creating a collage or an assemblage of your own? Even the bits and pieces on your desk or wherever you are right now can be connected and combined in new and inventive ways. Don't forget to share your creations with us.
0: We'll see you next month for our next episode. Goodbye!